Welcome to the Ed Essentials Podcast, a show that equips educators through stories and insights. Before we start today's show, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the Ed Essentials Podcast. It really helps other educators connect with the Ed Essentials community. On this episode of the Ed Essentials Podcast, I am honored to host the legendary Dave Schmidto. Dave is the Director of Leadership and Development for the Teach Better team. He's the author of several education-based books, one of which we discuss in this interview. He's a man who has worn many hats, both figuratively and literally. Dave loves wearing hats during his talks and interviews. So Dave, if you're listening, I hope you're proud of my terrible hat joke. (laughs) He's a former elementary school principal, former middle school principal, assistant principal coach, and teacher. I brought Dave on the show because of his powerful message surrounding feedback and how we can get outside of the cookie cutter method of providing it and how to truly use it to change schools. Dave also has a massive focus on empowering educators to take risks, something I am super hyped up about, and he talks about practices leaders can utilize to build a positive culture around risk-taking. But most of all, I brought Dave on because he is so brutally honest and vulnerable. He doesn't hide his flaws, and he uses them in such a reflective manner that is such a great example for all educators to emulate. Without any more delay, please welcome to the Ed Essentials Podcast, Dave Schmidt. I am doing great, man. This is this is an exciting moment for me. I've been waiting for this moment for a long time. So just being able to, to chat with you and spend some time with you is it's gonna be good. I'm looking forward to this. I can say the same. I've been following you on some social media platforms for a while now, and I was just hyping you up before this, just saying, gosh, I love Schmidt's energy. I wore the hat to to match the Schmidt hat vibe you got going on <laughs> over there. Uh it's I just love well, everything. I got I gotta tell you, man, you're getting you're getting bonus points right now. So many people are so scared to, to attempt the last name. You pulled it right out and nailed it up front. So yay for you, man. Pulling out my last name, nailing it, articulating it better than <laughs> I do. And the hat. Seriously, this is this is going to be fun. All right. Well, glad it's all the way up now. And now it's going to go downhill. Everything else is going to be downhill <laughs> from here. No, it's this is going to be great. I can already tell it's going to be a great episode. So for, for those that don't know you, Dave, um, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your journey in, in, into education and where you're at right now. Wow. That, there's a whole lot there. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll kind of reverse engineer this a little bit. Sure. Um, bef- before we start talking education, who am I? I am a father of four kids, which takes up a lot of my energy, a lot of my time, but it also fuels a lot of my passions. My oldest uh, child as we're recording this, is in his freshman year of high school. My youngest is in kindergarten. And then I've got two others somewhere in between. I would tell you what <laughs> grades, but I don't remember. Um, but they're somewhere in between there. Um, but they are they are amazing. They are the reason why I do just about everything I do. Um, a lot of what I talk about, a lot of what I share is through the lens of parent more than through my educational experience. So my, my beliefs and my philosophies, a lot of the things that I'm passionate about today quite honestly, weren't necessarily things that I believed, understood, or even knew back when I was in my second year of teaching. They're things that have grown out of me as I've looked at things through a parenting lens, through an administrator lens, through a variety of different perspectives, which I think has is, is helped me grow and evolve into who I am and the things I'm comfortable um, shouting from the rooftops now. Mm-hmm. Uh, on the professional side, um, I am in my 21st year 
and education. And, and as we talked about before we went on, that makes me old because I've been doing this almost as long as you've been alive, my friend. Um, but I'm in year 21, which is absolutely crazy to think about. And in that time, I've spent um, almost a decade as a classroom teacher at the middle school level, um, then started doing the dance. I was a district athletic director, assistant principal, middle school principal, um, an elementary principal. Um, I've worked in Michigan and in Florida. I was an assistant superintendent, curriculum instruction, a professor of educational leadership, uh, helping prepare future principals and superintendents, things of, in that regard. Get to do a lot of cool work with the Teach Better team. And truly the, the highlight is being able to sit down and connect with people like you as often as possible. So that's me kind of in a nutshell. Wow. I've, I have to ask a follow-up question. So when did you know that you wanted to start doing the dance? Because that's something I'm really starting <laughs> to think about is, you know, I'm in year two okay, and I'm starting yeah. my educational leadership program next fall. Um, but that doesn't mean yeah. that I want to start, you know, that leadership route right away, obviously off the two-year program. But even after that, like, when did you know, you know, Hey, this dance is for me. I want to start, start making some moves here. So what I'm going to tell you is the honest story. And I'm going to tell you the honest story, not to persuade you, not to dissuade you, but just <laughs> because you asked. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought I, I had all of the answers to all of the things by October of my first year teaching. So I spent a month in the classroom, thought this is a piece of cake. My leaders, they don't really know what they're doing. I could do this so much better than them. And I started, um, I, I started thinking about the dance, if you will, that early on in my career. And at the end of my first year as a classroom teacher, I decided, okay, I'm going to go pursue my ed leadership degree and had my uh, credentials in hand at the end of my third year. And after teaching for three years, went and back then couldn't just apply online. I had to go drive around district to district and drop, drop off resumes, um, dropped off dozens and dozens of packets of my information. And that, that year, after my third year teaching, I went on 16 job interviews, 16 interviews to try to become wow. a principal. Because I, again, I had all the answers. Did not get a single opportunity after 16 interviews and was ticked. I was mad. A sane person would have looked themselves in the mirror and said, okay, maybe I'm not ready. No, I thought <laughs> this is the problem with education today. They don't see greatness when it's literally sitting across the desk from them. And I was bitter. I was angry. I was frustrated so much so that that year, when I went back to, to the classroom, I said, I'm going to go to law school now because education's not for me. I'm going to go to law school and become a lawyer, and I'm going to start representing people who want to sue school districts that are obviously so inept and that don't have a clue what they're doing. So I went to law school in, in the evenings. I would teach five days a week, um, went to law school four nights a week, um, and did that just so I could prove to people how smart and how refined I was. Luckily, after a, about five years of doing all of that, I had a mentor who sat me down. Um, I worked in a, a huge mega district in the state of Michigan at the time. Um, and I had a mentor who was the director of human resources, was not my mentor until this moment, but he called me into his office and said, Hey, Schmidt, I need to talk to you. And when you work in a large district, there's only a couple of reasons why the human resources director calls you in. Um, this was not because he was trying to offer me a promotion or give me a sticker or a pat on the back. He called me and said, Hey, I've been hearing your name quite a bit. And I know you're out there looking I know that you're out there trying your best to be the answer to all the things, but I got to be honest with you. Um, you're never going to get an opportunity because you're not even a good teacher. 
and I was ticked. I was upset. And I, I remember asking him, like, basically, who do you think you are? How, how dare you say that? And he said, the reason I know you're not a good teacher is because nobody's ever come to me and said you're a good teacher. I live in this town. I live in this community. And there's nobody out there saying that you're a good teacher. So don't expect to get yourself a leadership position trying to make teachers better teachers when you're not even doing that. You've got one foot in the door, one foot out the door, always thinking the grass is greener. Buckle down, be an amazing teacher, and you'll be amazed at the doors that open up to you. And I, I left that meeting kind of frustrated, kind of devastated, but got that slap across the face that I so desperately needed and spent a couple of more years just buckling down saying he was absolutely right. I was constantly looking for that next opportunity. I was looking for that next thing and trying my best to knock people down in my, on my way to get there and buckle down and uh, became the teacher that I probably should have been from the start. And as a result, opportunities presented themselves to me and I was able to, to start climbing the chain, if you will, and had to move a few times to, to make it happen. Made a ton of mistakes even in that journey and had the arrogance and the conceits that I didn't squash as quickly as I should have continued to swell up at times. And I would say it's literally been the last three or four years where things have finally settled in. I'm able to look myself in the mirror and say, wow, no, this is exactly who I'm supposed to be doing what I'm supposed to be. So. Wow. Well, I appreciate the honesty and vulnerability. And as you were saying that, like, I see a little bit of myself in you a little bit where, and this is how I kind of view it is in my life. And this is just me being super honest right now. Uh, I've not been told no a lot, like <laughs> things that I've tried out for things that I've applied for. I've, I've sort of kind of just gotten fairly easily. Not that I haven't worked hard for it. Not that I didn't deserve it. Um, but I think that's something that I, uh, have to think about moving forward is, okay, do you really think that you're ready or do you need to pump the brakes and really take that look in the mirror moment and slow down a bit? Um, spend some time that you need to practicing and refining before you, you take that next step. Um, oh yeah. Yeah. Well to do. Yeah. And, and I, I can't answer that question for you. It's, right. it's a question you've got to definitely answer for right. yourself. But, um, I was, I was in that same boat quite a bit. I, I, I was actually talking to somebody this morning and we were talking about how third grade was this pivotal moment for both this person I was talking to and myself, because we were painted into our identities in third grade. This other person was told that they weren't good at math or science. They grew up believing they weren't ever going to be a mathematician or a scientist. And that's exactly who they are today, a mathematician and a scientist, because they <laughs> defy those odds. For me in third grade, I was given the designation as gifted. And I, as a result, I started to believe and believe this all the way through schooling and all the way into early adulthood, that everything's just supposed to come easy to me because of th this is who I am, because somebody in third grade said this was who I am. And if something didn't go my way, if somebody told me no, it wasn't my fault. It was everybody else's fault because I have this label. And that's exactly what happened to me when I went on those 16 interviews. Couldn't have been my fault because I'm gifted. I'm this genius. It's got to be everybody else's fault. And thank God I've been working through that. <laughs> and, but but honestly, I, it wasn't until I was close to 40 years old before it all clicked, before wow. I finally realized, wow, I've got to change some things. So hopefully you're yeah. making some of those adjustments and already becoming who you're supposed to be where you are right now. Well, third grade teachers just got a special uh, call out. Yeah, Make right? sure you're, I mean, seriously, the labels you give students is super powerful, but I mean, from where you started to where you are now, I mean, you're writing books, like you are, you're a college professor, you're doing all these amazing things. I mean, that's that's incredible that even though you were going through that whole dance, you still ended up wanting to refine and practice and improve. I think at some point, some teachers just kind of would, would have stuck with that initial mindset you, you started with, you know what I mean? It's like, it's, it's my way or the highway and everyone else is wrong. But then that, 
that forces you to never change. And then you wonder why things aren't going your way. Well, you have to have that look in the mirror moment. We all have to. And the more yeah. comfortable we get looking in the mirror, um, the more we're able to adapt and change. So I think there's some, yeah. some value in that. Well, even beyond the looking in the mirror, you know, when I, I think about that, that person that evolved into my mentor, um, I, I think about <laughs> the fact that every morning I wake up, get a shower, get dressed, and I look in the mirror. And when I look in the mirror, oftentimes I'm like, yeah, this matches. This works. But then I leave and I walk down the stairs and I have five other people that live in this house that will tell me, what are you wearing? That doesn't match a Hawaiian shirt in January. Really? That's not going to work for you. <laughs> so even though I, I look and I reflect, it's so important to have other people that can cast a different reflection into your life. And then it's finding that balance because there are times that they say, oh, that doesn't go. But I say, no, but it fits who I am today. So mm-hmm. you got to have that, that balance of having people that will be very real and honest and um, that you can trust to tell you the truth because sometimes you can't see the truth yourself. Yeah, that's so powerful. And especially for like young teachers starting to figure that out. We want to listen yeah. to everyone because right. we're brand new. We don't know any better. And so figuring out who to listen to and when yep. to listen and not to listen is really difficult. It just takes time to kind of Absolutely. figure that out. Absolutely. Um, well, and, and changing gears a little bit, uh, I haven't been able to read this yet, but when I was kind of going through your website, looking through some of the work that you've done, I'm super intrigued. And I've seen a lot of people tweeting about it. Uh, your book, Making Assessment Work for Educators Who Hate Data But Love Kids. And I was like, yes, this is me. Um, <laughs> because I, and, and I'm getting better at it, but it's not something that was um, sort of worked into me going through my collegiate program was sure. like, you hear it, data, 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 data. You need to have that in your classroom, but like the strategies of doing that are really difficult unless someone shows you what that is. Um, so I'm, I'm curious, what was the motive um, in creating that book and what should readers expect when they pick it up for the first time? So first of all, my heart broke when you said you haven't read it yet. I'm just well, teasing. I'm, I'm totally teasing. I'm teasing. I'm totally teasing. Totally teasing. I haven't read it yet, so it's okay. Um, <laughs> so the, the motive behind it is really the subtitle more than the making assessment work. It's for educators who hate data but love kids. Um, Data, data, whatever we want to call that word has become this nasty four-letter word in schools everywhere. We're we're told that we're supposed to use it, but those telling us we're supposed to use it have no idea how to use it. We simplify data into numbers or percentages or points or stainines and standard deviation. I mean, I could talk about a bunch of statistical terms that I guarantee 95% of the administrators that are telling educators to use these things don't understand. But that's the data that they want us to use to demonstrate growth, mastery, proficiencies, and a whole bunch of other terms that people don't necessarily understand. So what I wanted to do is I wanted to remind educators that there's data out there that we can grab onto that actually makes sense, that we can actually use in our classrooms to truly make a difference. I talk a little bit about the use of the mean and how using the mean is mean. I talk about retakes and redos and all of those sorts of things. And honestly, what I try to do is I try to debunk a lot of the other things that we're told we're supposed to use percentiles and growth percentages and all those other things, because we don't use it. We don't know what it means. So we've got to stop pretending like we do and get back to saying what actually works in our classrooms. What data are we really trying to collect? What assessment really matters to us? What is assessment is truly just the collection of evidence demonstrating student learning. And so many people use assessment to label a student, to define a student, and then to define and label teachers as opposed to using assessment to plan for what's next. All we do is we use it to say what was. So the book is really designed to give people tools to plan for what's next 
as opposed to slapping labels on kids, teachers, schools, districts, states, the whole nine yards. Gosh, that's super powerful. Now, I, I'm going to buy it right now. Uh, <laughs> pause this interview real Let's quick. Take a I'm pause. Go, go to yeah, Amazon. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, that's super fascinating. And, and this is when I hear the word data and I connect it with schools, you know, my mind automatically just goes to test scores, um, yeah. you know, and, and that, that's a negative connotation. And I mean, it can be negative. It can also be positive too. It just all right. depends on how your uh, school utilizes data and how that, what practices they put in place for their teachers to um, make the best decisions based off that, off of that data. Um, yeah. I think, you know, in my school, we do uh, weekly cluster meetings, you know, as a seventh and eighth grade math and science team. And so we're able to really dive into live classroom data um, to make those decisions moving forward. And I think that's allowed me to feel a lot more comfortable with the idea of data and what that means. It's not something that seems consequential to me. It seems is something that's going to help me literally yeah. maybe in the next class period after that meeting. Um, and I think that, and that's hard to, um, understand or realize or see the value in data unless you have a system in place that promotes that. Does that make sense? Oh, it makes total sense. And you hit on a couple of points here. And I, I feel like Pandora's box was just open to this conversation. So <laughs> rein me back in whenever we need to. All right. But you hit on a couple of powerful points there. Um, number one, what are we doing with, with the data? And in so many places, the same data that we're using to evaluate and label a teacher is the data that we're saying teachers are supposed to be using to plan for their next instructional steps. And the, the, the irony or the, the paradigm shift that needs to happen is we're never going to get teachers to start admis, admitting where they're falling short or where they're struggling if that's the same data that we're going to use to then evaluate their effectiveness at the end of the year. If I come to you as my administrator and I say, Hunter, here's where my students are struggling. And now you've got a rubric that defines, well, if somebody is struggling, you're not an effective teacher. I am not going to be sharing that data with you. Instead, I'm coming to you with the mask on saying everything is perfect. Everything's hunky-dory. Look at all of the amazing growth that all of my students are demonstrating, not revealing any opportunities for growth, no opportunities for new learning because I'm being held accountable for that same data. I was talking to somebody um, just last week, Jeff Gargas. I Familiar, yep. familiar, oh, yeah. familiar person to you. And he was asking me some questions in this devil's advocate kind of environment. And he said, well, if you're saying that data shouldn't be used for evaluations, how will we ever know good teachers or bad teachers? And the answer is pretty simple. Yes, show up in classrooms. You pop in from time to time. You don't wait for a magical data portfolio to appear on your desk in May and say, now I'm going to evaluate you. Just like as a teacher, you know a student is learning by collecting evidence of learning every single minute you're with the kid. You're constantly assessing. You're constantly collecting evidence that things are working. You don't have to wait till a magical test on a Friday because you arbitrarily said Friday, I have to have you take a multiple choice test so I can figure out if you learned all the stuff I did. I taught you Monday through Thursday. Mm -hmm. You measure it moment to moment, day to day, hour to hour, so that you can make your instructional shift. The same thing has to happen in our schools. I love that. I love that so much, Dave. Um, <laughs> and you're so right. And it made me think a little bit about the way that we uh, receive that, that state and national data, like that mm -hmm. happens like months later. So if we're, if we're basing all of our feedback opportunities based on, uh, a three month delay, like we've missed all that time to provide feedback to students, you know, in terms of map scores or ISAS or whatever those state tests are for you. So it's like, okay, what are the other opportunities then for data collection and how can we utilize that day-to-day minute-to-minute, just like you said. Um, yeah. but that, that, connects into this next question that I had for you, which then sort of falls on the leader then of a school mm -hmm. is how do you provide that quality feedback and, and how, 
do you promote or maybe encourage school leaders to shift their feedback practices? Because I feel like, and you can tell me if I'm wrong, but there are certain cookie cutter ways that principals um, maybe have learned how to provide feedback or they're mm-hmm. tied to, like for my school, we do the TAP rubric, which is a great rubric. It's a baseline, but how do you go beyond that um, outside of just that cookie cutter style? I mean, I feel like yeah. there's gotta be more ways to provide quality feedback in the moment, in the minute, um, to help teachers improve that data. Does that make yeah, sense? Absolutely. So to, to this point, um, you know, if we want to talk about research, I'll, I'll throw some research at, and it's not going to be new research for anybody. Educators everywhere have heard the work of John Hattie now for 15 plus years. And for those people that might not have ever heard of John Hattie, John Hattie did this huge meta-analysis literally a decade and a half ago where he looked at 50,000 studies and said, what's actually working in schools? And in the research, we see that 95% of what we do in schools works. Great news. Yay. 95% of what we're doing in schools works. Horrible news for an administrator who's trying to get people to be innovative because teachers are able to look at that administrator and say, I don't need to change. What I'm doing is working. And they're spot on. What they're doing is working. What the administrator has to do, though, is try to shift the conversation from what works or what is best practice, because truly 95% of what we're doing is already a best practice. It's already been proven to work to say, what can we do that's going to be even better practice? And that's a, that's a mindset shift that we have to adapt and um, evolve into. And what we tend to do with all of our evaluation rubrics is we base them off of that best practice mindset is what does, what works for 95% of the kids, 95% of the time, which is all good. It's all great. Give me some feedback on that. But those rubrics don't necessarily drive innovation. They drive compliance, they drive safety, they drive proficient, they drive effective, they drive all of those behaviors that reach the mean, and the mean is mean. Nobody wants to stay in the mean. Nobody wants to be mean. Everybody wants to be awesome. So I'm a firm believer that what we value, we assess. What we assess, we teach. I'm a firm believer that the, one of the, 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 the things that drives success um, for teachers and students, unlike anything else, is quality feedback. We see that in that research that John Hattie did. Feedback drives learning. The only way to get feedback is to have some sort of demonstration or to provide some sort of assessment or evidence of learnings that somebody then can then say, let me align that, give you some suggestions and guidance. Feedback leads to instruction. So assessment leads to feedback. Feedback leads to teaching. So we have to change the paradigm where assessment drives everything else. I say all that because what tends to happen with all assessment is it becomes an assessment of the instruction. What happens with a lot of administrators is they come into a classroom to observe and they already have the rubric defined. They see instruction take place and they simply check boxes on a rubric, pass it back to a teacher and say, here's where you are on the rubric. I'll see you in six weeks. I'll see you in 10 weeks. I'll see you second semester. There's no immediate follow-up to say, now let's see how that changes your practice tomorrow. Let's figure out your next steps. This is what I really want you to focus on. How can we make this better? It's just, here's where you are in the moment. I'll come back in at some ar- another arbitrary point in time in the future, and we'll see progress on a lesson that's not related with kids that may or may not be the same um, on content that's probably not the same. So we're not going to see growth change and whatever patterns. So one of the things that I did in my school um, when I worked as what they called a turnaround principal, yet another label that I hate for so many reasons. Nobody wants to work in a school where you have a turnaround leader because that means they're coming in to change everything. So if you're in a turnaround school, I'm so sorry, change that label. That's neither here nor there. Um, When I was a turnaround principal, I had to try to change that paradigm. 
because there was real fear of, am I going to lose my job if we don't see student success? The state was coming in and saying, you need to do more test prep. Your teachers need to have the standards written on the board. They all need to be on the same page of the book at the same time. We have to have these worksheets passed out and these reading prompts. We have to practice for the test every single day. And I'm in there saying, no, that's not what we need. We need people that are going to be innovative. We're going to, we need people that are going to try things outside of the box. But these teachers were thinking, no, because at the end of the year, I'm going to be assessed based off of X, Y, or Z. So I had to come up with a way to celebrate and sing the praises of people that thought outside of the box. So one of the things we did is A, in my building, we got rid of all staff meetings, which was a powerful practice. If you're an administrator listening to this, get rid of staff meetings. Nobody wants to be there. But instead of monthly staff meetings or biweekly staff meetings, we met every single morning. And we would come together for 10 minutes every single morning for a morning huddle. And the morning huddles were very scripted. We had a couple minutes to celebrate what happened the day before, a couple minutes to talk about what was happening that day, just like a regular football huddle. What happened on the last play? Where's everybody need to be this uh, today so we can all be in position? And then we spent the last minute, the last five minutes of every huddle celebrating risk-taking innovation. And I went on the Oriental Training Company and bought a bunch of dog tags that had little pirate emblems on them. And anytime a teacher was celebrated for taking a risk or being innovative or trying something outside of the box, they got a new dog tag to wear. And it became part of their uniform. And we had teachers that were decked out like Mr. T. They had bling like crazy. <laughs> and the kids would always come up to the teachers and say, what'd you do? How'd you earn that cool dog tag today? So then the teachers get to tell the kids about a risk that they took and an innovation and innovative practice they took. Other teachers are seeing dog tags and they're hearing the celebrations. And that became the new norm. Then it became the practice of, I need to go try something that's different today, whether it fails, whether or not it succeeds, I need to go try it. And then we, we're going to talk about it collectively. And that became the pattern. And that it's a school that turned itself around because what we were chasing was no longer this end of score, ambiguous test. It was, we're going to be innovative today and tomorrow because these kids deserve it. And they're not just a number. Wow. I love that so much. And it takes the focus off of the test and it yeah, focuses on uh, the innovation, the risk-taking yeah. and the creative ideas and, and having that confidence. And that's hard for educators, but to have that confidence and security and saying, you know what, this is super different. And I'm going to focus on this, even though it's not maybe exactly out of a textbook or what this would be aligned to. But I know that doing this lesson, taking this risk right now is going to help result in that high test score, no matter what later on. Yeah, that's and, it. And, and not separating and there, the two. Yeah. And there, there are multiple layers to this. I mean, it's not, it's right. not as simple as me standing up in front of everybody saying, Hey, do you want a little dog tag? I got off the Oriental training. Nope. Who wants a dog tag from Oriental training? That's like going to Chuck E. Cheese and saying, I'm going to go spend 50 bucks so I can win a trinket. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a big risk for a teacher to take to your point. So there are multiple layers to how this had to evolve and unpack. And one of the things that was so paramount is the teachers had to know that I was going to take the blame for anything that horrible that happened. If, if for any reason, any day of the week, a superintendent or somebody from the state came and they wanted to walk the halls of the school and they saw something that was not what they were used to or not what they were expecting, that was coming on me. I wasn't going to look at the teacher and throw them under the bus to somebody wearing a fancy suit. It was, it was on me. There's a, there's a book that I'm actually currently reading right now by a Navy SEAL named Jocko Willink called Extreme oh, yeah. Ownership. Love that. Um, it, yeah. Extreme Ownership is powerful. It's a powerful mindset that if you're the leader, you own everything. Nobody gets the blame. You own it all. Just like you're going to celebrate all of it. And I think that's what's missing in a lot of schools. We use test scores. We use numbers so that we can figure out whose fault something was, as opposed to owning it, growing in it, and improving in it. Gosh, that's so true. And I'm curious. So 
when you were at the school, how long did it take? I mean, did you know the minute like, Hey, this has got to change. Like we cannot move forward with this, this assessment tool anymore. Some, like I'm sure for you, it probably happened pretty quickly. Um, but sometimes I think of administrators who have been in these systems for years and years and years and things become so ingrained and so difficult to change. Like I think of my mom, who was a principal for gosh, 10 years at a couple of different schools. I mean, some of those places take years to change. And so, yeah. so how do you make that turnaround turnaround? How do you make that change happen so quickly? So the answer is probably not going to be a popular answer. So know that. Um, but go to your original question about like, when did you realize things had to change? Again, I go back to my first year teaching. And I thought there were some broken things in the system. It's system capital S, organizations, big O, not my individual school. I, was, I meant nationwide. And I started teaching back before No Child Left Behind was a thing. I mean, you think you thought I was old before. That's old. <laughs> right. So I taught back in the day when there weren't the big tests. That's when I first started. And then my third year teaching, now all of a sudden I had to start giving these big tests and nobody knew what to expect. And I look at these tests and the tests were crazy. They didn't align with what I was teaching. And there was just so many questions I started to ask, which that really started my, my whole passion of we got to start figuring out what assessment really means. And I'll, I'll tell you where we are right now with that, with the assessment game is in a completely different place than we were 17, 18 years ago. And I would argue that our assessments right now are way better than they ever were. What we do with those assessments is still jacked up and backwards. That's a bigger issue than the assessments themselves, but that's another conversation. But to, to the heart of your question of how, how does change really happen that quickly? Couple of things. Um, number one, I knew when I accepted the job that change was going to be necessary. Um, I think a lot of times administrators, especially new administrators, will take any job they can get without doing a, their due diligence to figure out if it's the right job. And when I when I accepted any of my positions, I knew what the expectations were for success. I knew how others were going to evaluate me, which at times though does cause, cause some conflict because when you see other things, now you're wondering, do I work for the man above or the people below or like where do I fit in this whole crazy structure? Um, but when I was working at the school I was just describing. That school was in Florida. I lived in Michigan when I accepted that job. And I knew I was going to have to uproot my entire family and move across country to take this job where they were going to call me a turnaround principal. And it was a school that the entire state of Florida knew was a struggling school. Florida rates itself from on a scale of A to F on every school. And this was a school that had been an F for as long as they've been rating schools. Um, the the superintendent told me he was bringing somebody in because he wanted an outsider to come in. I was going to be the only outsider in this huge district of 70 plus schools. I was going to be the only person coming from outside of the state because he wanted somebody different in. It was a part of me that thought, oh my gosh, this is amazing. I got the full backing of the district and the superintendent. But then there was another part of me that thought, holy crap, I am going to be that guy coming in with all the different things. Nobody's going to believe in me or want to do anything I say. Things, it's going to be a mess. And from the day that I was introduced at, to my staff as the turnaround principal, it was hard. It was difficult. It was excruciatingly hard. But I also was able to recognize that there were some people that were willing to innovate and shift and adjust and change and others um, that were amazing teachers, but maybe not necessarily for that building. There were some people that would probably be better served being in a building where it wasn't going to require them to show up um, in the, the housing projects on the weekends, where they weren't necessarily going to have to go out and feed families on Thanksgiving because that wasn't in their, their comfort zone. And God bless them. They were able to find other places to go. But at, at the end of that first year, we replaced 60% of the teachers. And I replaced them 
by doing a nationwide search. Um, it was in that, that county, uh, most teachers come up through the system and they were part of the system. They've always lived there and they continue to teach. And I wanted to get some people that didn't know the history, didn't know the way it always was. I wanted to get some people that were, that wanted to come for a mission, some people that wanted to come and truly serve. And like I said, we turned over more than half of the staff that year and that turnover, um, half of those new teachers were truly brand new teachers. And a lot of, a lot of my counterparts in the district said, you can't do that. The school needs veteran leadership. They need people that know how we do things. And I said, that's exactly what I'm trying to get away from. Honestly, I want to get some people here that are willing to try, willing to lean in, willing to say, I don't know. They can fall back on their, I don't know any better mindset and try some new things because they truly didn't know any better. Some people that are still green enough to ask for help and to support each other. And that's what turned it around is we had a people that joined our school from Wisconsin, Michigan, New York, Hawaii, um, a couple from Florida, some California, Kansas, Illinois, and it became this melting pot of people that were truly, that became a family doing all things for all the right reasons. And it transformed that school. So. Wow. That's a lot to unpack. <laughs> it is. <laughs> it is. Oh my I told it wasn't a simple answer, but it, and it's probably not a popular answer either. Mm -mm. Um, it, it, but to be fair, none of those people were, were fired or removed. We had very real and honest conversations. And I, I simply said, in this building, here is what these kids need. And if you are willing to do this, and especially in this day and age, I get it. I, I, it was asking a lot for teachers. It was asking a ton. I get it. But these were teachers that chose to work in a school where their job required them to be social worker, counselor, mom, dad, brother, sister, auntie, uncle, food provider, bus driver, all the things. And it wasn't fair comparing their job to teachers that worked in other, other districts and other buildings. It was not fair. I agree with that, but it also wasn't fair to those kids that needed that. Um, and I wanted, I, I was willing to help any teacher that didn't want, want to be there find a job in another building where they could thrive and they could shine with no ill will. But I knew that for my building and those kids, we needed people that had the time, the ability, the desire, the heart to do all the things that those kids needed. Gosh. And I'm sure now thinking about that extreme ownership idea too, it's like that probably allowed a lot of those new teachers coming in to feel a lot more confident to try those risks and, and, try new things because they knew that you had their back. I think that's something super fascinating is when a teacher is hired with a school, how, what, how does a leader make an, an impression on them and how do leaders support those new staff members, whether first year teacher or 20 year teacher, how do you bring the, that staff member in to really get them bought into what you're doing? I think that's a, a fascinating thing. Cause I've never really had to do it. Of course, it's just yeah. something that's very intriguing to me. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was a choice that I made, um, that I, I don't, this isn't necessarily advice for anybody. It's probably bad advice. Um, but I was very open and honest. Anytime I got reamed out and chewed out by one of my supervisors, I let my staff know um, because I want, I wanted them to know that I was falling on that sword. I wanted them to know when people came in and questioned what we were doing, but I, and I wanted them to know, and here's what I said, and you're going to keep doing it. Um, I, and there are other people that would say, no, you shouldn't do that. I mean, let people know that it's, it's safe and secure and, and all that, but it was a strategic move on my part. I wanted them to know. And when I say it happened a lot, I, weekly, I had somebody coming in and saying, I, we need to talk. And it happened a lot because it was so counter to, to the norm. 
And I, I would tell you to this day, um, looking back on it now, I can guarantee that there are destinies that were changed because of the work that we did. There were kids that um, are not going to be 14-year-old high school dropouts in fifth grade, uh, high school dropout in fifth grade. Well, you know what I mean? Because they were being held right, back right. year after year because of the work we did. They were able to see success and realize they could learn, they could grow, and that they are going to change destinies and change generations because the teachers that were there poured into kids as kids, not as numbers. How did you, so with your honesty, and, and I don't know if you've heard the term of like radical uh, transparency mm -hmm. um, or radical candor, there's both yeah. are out there, but how did you find, because it was from based on your leadership style and kind of how you strategically made those decisions, did you modeling that help teachers also be radically transparent with you? Do you, do you find that teachers were able to be more willing and open with you and honest with you? Because that's something that I find too that a lot of teachers will kind of talk within closed doors. They don't ever let anyone know that matters, how it actually, what they would actually wish would be done. And then they're just bottling this up for years and years and years and nothing ever gets changed. Well, it's like, come on, have the conversation yeah. and let's figure it out. So th there's two different ways I want to go with this answer. Maybe I'll just go with both of them to answer the point, the, the question directly um, <laughs> at, at this one school that we're describing uh, for Christmas one year, the staff all pitched in and bought me a bulk order of Kleenex for my office because the running joke was you enter Schmidt's office, you're leaving crying because <laughs> we're all just going to be a mess. So there was this radical transparency that if people were struggling or they were overwhelmed, there was a, le a leather couch. People would just come in and sit in and cry in, in my office and we would just make the world a better place. So it, it, yes, to, to, to answer that part of it. But the more complicated part of the answer is even through all of that, I would, if I'm looking back on it now, retrospectively, if I'm being completely honest, I was not completely transparent with all things. I, I was very calculating. I was very, even now, I, I guess I would use the, the very harsh word at times, manipulative in those situations, taking, um, taking moments and thinking, how can I capitalize on this to try to create more vulnerability, more transparency? Well, all at the same time, I was wrestling with my own self trying to figure out is what kind of leader am I? What kind of person am I? Can I, I mean, I have four kids and I was spending 12 hour days um, at work and on the weekends hanging out in the, the housing projects and oftentimes feeling like it wasn't enough and worried. What does the, the superintendent and the school board think about what I'm doing versus what do the teachers think I'm doing? What do the students think I'm doing? And trying to please everybody, it became exhausting. And I, 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 Again, I know this about me now. I've gone through this healing process for the last three plus years where I know that who I was then, I was almost like the Joker. I was, or Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde. I had multiple personalities trying to figure out who to please at any moment. And I wore myself down to the point where I literally had a breaking point one night on a bridge in 2017, wondering, would anybody even notice or care or any of that? Um, so I was encouraging everybody else to open up and be real and say, tell me your struggles. Tell me what you're dealing with. And in the same time, I felt like my role was to be the savior of all people, to be the person that had, that could fix everything for everybody. In the meantime, wasn't even fixing myself and it became overwhelming and exhausting. So it's, it's twofold. Yeah. The teachers felt like they could be open and honest to me because I was sharing parts that I wanted them to know parts that were real, but they weren't the whole story mm -hmm. all in an attempt to try to get them to share more 
that ultimately I could help solve their issues even more. I mean, mm-hmm. it was savior syndrome to the extreme. Yeah. Yeah. Until I got to the point where I said, I can't even fix me. And it, it got to a breaking point. So, wow. Yeah. And I mean, thank you for sharing that. That's super honest and vulnerable of you to do. I mean, but I, I feel like that resonates with so many leaders because I mean, that's why I, our last principal left is he just burnt out. He was pushed yeah. to the max. Um, and I think maybe some staff members just undervalued what they were doing. And it's not like you have to agree with what your leader is doing all the time, but I think, and this is, you know, I am lucky enough because my dad's a teacher and my mom's a retired principal now. So I was able to see them share both of their perspectives growing up. So I can understand a little bit of both lifestyles and both, yeah. um, in terms of, uh, responsibility and how much both jobs exhaust you. But I think when we are in the roles, we often forget how to really empathize with each other. Um, yes. especially when you have your boss telling you to do certain things and those things you disagree with, it's hard to have empathy all the time. Um, mm-hmm. especially when teachers and just educators in general are just pushed to the limits already. Um, yeah. we, we give all of our empathy to our students, but we don't give enough empathy to, <laughs> uh, each other, let alone ourselves too. We don't, yes. we don't, take time for ourselves. So I'm really glad that you shared that because, because that's super powerful for educators to hear. Well, it, it's so true. Even it, the idea of empathy and grace and all of that. And I don't necessarily want to unpack the difference between empathy and grace right now, other than to point out that they are different. Empathy yeah. requires you to actually know somebody's story. Grace, you just pass out freely. And we, we've talked a lot about the need to extend grace or empathy to our students or, or principals are saying they're going to provide a lot of empathy or grace to their teachers where it's, it's very easy to pass it downhill but very rarely do we look uphill and recognize that every single person that we work with is a middle manager to someone, you know, parents and and students blame teachers feeling like teachers are the end all be all teachers blame their principals, thinking that all their decisions are stupid and horrible. And they're the ones that made them. We forget that they're answering to somebody too. principals blame their superintendents, superintendents blame the school board. The school board blames the state. The state blames all the people that are living in. I mean, it's just ridiculous. We have to have empathy both ways on the hierarchy. You have to assume that everybody truly has the best of intentions, assume the good and doubt the bad, assume that everybody wakes up saying, I'm going to make somebody's life better tomorrow. The choices and decisions that they make might not result in that, but you have to assume that they meant the, the, meant the absolute best. Yeah, that's, that's, gosh, you're preaching to the choir right now. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's so true. We, we, and we say it like with our, for our students too, do we honestly think that uh, our students are waking up each day thinking, I'm going to make Mr. Schmidt's life terrible today. I'm going to make Mr. Flesh's life terrible today. No, like we have to assume that they have good intent. And so we also have to assume that the adults in our life also have good intent and, and understand that, yes, not everything's going to go our way, just like you said, but we have to be willing to try and understand first before we make that mental judgment. Um, Cause that's the stuff, honestly, that's the complaining and the, the whining and the frustrations are often just self-inflicted. Mm-hmm. Um, if we just have a, a, a little mindset, mindset shift that could eliminate a lot of that extra stress. So, yeah. Spot on. Um, so this next question I have for you, you, you talked a lot about challenges too, within your, some of your schools here, but maybe as you're preparing future leaders or, or when you have done that in the past, when you've been preparing school leaders, whether principals, instructional coaches, whatever, you name it, what are some of the challenges that you are trying to prepare them to overcome? Or what are some of the current challenges that you think a lot of those leaders are having to battle right now? So it's kind of a two-part question. Yeah. And, and I'll probably answer this in a non-traditional fashion. So sure. instead of talking about 
organizational issues they need to be prepared for or assessment. I think the biggest roadblock that we often have is ourselves. I mean, for me, I've jokingly told people that when I first became a principal, I was so focused on creating itty bitty schmitties that that's all I worried about. I felt like I was good in the classroom. So I just need everybody else to do exactly what I did when I was a teacher and they'll be good too. And I was so focused on making sure everybody did the things that worked for me or the things that I thought were best for everybody that I lost sight of who the individual teachers were and what their individual gifts were. And then as I started to evolve and I started to recognize, okay, everybody's different. They don't have to do things just like me. I was so focused on trying to fix deficits that I didn't focus on strengths. I would look at their evaluation rubric, their 22 little indicators and say, where are they short? And how do we fix those as opposed to where are they already excelling and how can I capitalize on that? If I, if I could challenge any administrator anywhere it would be to go out and focus on strengths, go out and look for the giftings that individuals have and build around those. Don't spend all of your time trying to make things that are mediocre average. Go out there and find all these things that are good and turn them into excellent, turn them into great. Find the things that make each teacher shine, each student shine and focus in on those. Even if you're chasing big state scores and you're trying to go from a C to a B or B to whatever that stupid rating is, you can achieve those things by tapping into greatness instead of settling for mediocrity. Gosh. And that's, you only need one thing. It's not like you have to be a great, yep. every single strategy there is in the book. Like that's just not, we're all different. Yep. So it's, it's, I feel like as an administrator, it's the job to help the person identify their strengths and yep. highlight their strengths. And you talk a little bit about that. Uh, I don't know if it was a tweet that went viral or what it was, but um, doing this tag out idea where <laughs> administrators oh, yeah. come in and then, and you can tell me if I'm wrong. And then a teacher has time to actually go see the strengths of another teacher. Yeah. Like that is, I love that. I want so <laughs> many, I, I wish schools like that should just be required. Like that should just be something that we do. And as a, as a second year teacher, that was something that I, I still want to do so much. It's just, I I'm trying and, and for reference, I'm the only seventh grade science teacher in my school. And so it's yeah. like, I think I'm doing the right thing, but I won't really know if it's quality teaching or like, I don't know what other options there are if I don't get into other classrooms, yeah. but it's not necessarily a system that's in place. I've been lucky enough to observe some other teachers, but gosh, that should be something that's mandatory within schools is to observe other teachers and their strengths. Yeah. It's the same, it's the same mindset. And, um, where, where teachers can sometimes feel like I'm the only one that can teach these students this concept or this content. Well, the reality is we've learned over the past year, there's a lot of different ways to teach kids. And sometimes our parents can actually help, help us teach, or we can have co-teachers that can help support us. We have to recognize that there are other ways to learn. Similarly, administrators and leaders have to recognize we're not the only ones that can provide feedback to teachers to grow them. Just like in your classroom, sometimes students helping students and leaning into each other collaboratively grows a student in a way that you could have never done it. The same thing happens with teachers, if not more so. The ultimate goal for a leader is to grow their teachers and grow their staff, not to take credit for it, right. not to be wholly responsible for it, but sometimes to get out of the way and create structures just so that people can grow, which means coming in and yeah, I'll take your class for 15 or 20 minutes and I'll hang out. I'll try to remember what it was like to be a teacher again. And I'll socialize with your kids. I'll help facilitate some conversations. I'll ask some engaging questions so that I can model effective teaching pedagogy while you go out and see what everybody else is doing. I mean, that would drive so much more success and so much more innovation than me sitting in your classroom with a clipboard for 15 minutes, leaving a rubric on your desk that you'll read and I'll come back and talk to you about six weeks later. I mean, mm -hmm. go out and do it. Yeah. Yes. 
we need this to happen, Dave. We need this to become like a trend. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it is happening. It, Good. In the schools that I worked in, it happened. And that's the mm-hmm. craziest thing. You talk about this, this tweet, and it, <laughs> it is the craziest thing ever. I was just having a conversation today here at home about it. Like when I tweeted, I had no idea that this was a novel thing. It was just, it became common practice. Mm-hmm. Um, I would pop into classrooms and say, I want you to just go down the hall and pop into a few classrooms. I'm going to hang out with your kids for a little bit. And it's just, it became what we did. And for it to, this, this tweet, I mean, as of the, right before we came on, I was looking, it's, it's been commented on more than a hundred thousand times and retweeted like 50. It's, it's crazy to me. So many people are looking at this, like, I've never heard of that before. That's mm-hmm. the coolest thing ever. I, it boggles my mind. So leaders get out there and do it, do it. Teachers. If you say my, my principal will never do this. You do it during a planning time, go to another teacher's classroom and say, Today, I'm going to take 15 minutes and I'm going to take over your class. I want you to go watch somebody else. If it's that important to you, do it. Yeah, we got to make time for what's important. It's like, show me how you spend your time. I'll show you where your priorities are. That's it. If you're not prioritizing collaboration, like we can see that in your schedule. If it's not, yeah. it's not a system you have in place, then it's not prioritized. That's it. Yeah. And that's, and that's so true. Like uh, I mentioned it in another podcast episode I did, but like the best PD I usually receive is just like my morning conversation with the eighth grade science teacher. Because I, I have the 15 to 20 minutes to just ask her a question and she can just help me work through it right then and there. Yeah. Or, or she can show me what she's planning for her class. And then it helps me think about, okay, if she's doing it this way, this might be how I want to do it. And just that alone is so helpful. But so often, like, and this is just education, that's a problem in general. We are surrounded by people all the time, but we're so alone. Like, mm. especially within my school where it's like, I'm the only seventh grade science teacher you know, I don't even have a team to really to go off of in terms of content um, at, at that grade level. And so <laughs> it, it just amazes me how often we feel alone, but we're surrounded by so many people all the time. We just never have the time or so we think or what we're allowed um, to actually collaborate. But, but you know, Hunter, I'm going to give you some credit for this because you might be alone in your building, but across America, there are like 10 million educators. And right now, as we're recording this, you and I are separated by a thousand miles. And yet we're still having this conversation. And we both said before we started recording, we both do this because it's PD for us. It's our opportunity to learn and ask questions that we don't necessarily get to, to ask and to, to find like-minded people or people that can challenge us and grow us. So you didn't take this and say, I'm only in my second year. I'm all alone. This is who I'm going to be. You said, nope, challenge accepted. Let's go. I'm going to find some people out there across the country, across around the world that I can learn from. So yes, you can do it. And you're proof positive that it can be done. Absolutely. You just got to be willing to, to put in the work and do it. Absolutely. It's, 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 I think sometimes though, I think of the the upbringing that I had with parents being educators and the the people you get to talk to. And I think that's what, that's why I love the teach better team is just because it's a community of people that are willing to just share, whether it's just how your day was, or it's, Hey, here, we're going to set up this grid method and, you know, give you an, a specific strategy to use. Yeah. Um, but it's how can we make the, those resources and those communities so much more well-known that it just becomes something normal for new teachers like myself to find. Um, yeah. And how do we make it systematic versus happenstance that I just kind of came upon, you know, uh, the teach better, you know what I mean? Yeah, no, Um, completely. Yeah. So it's almost like you, you won the lottery, you scratched the lucky ticket and look what you found. Right. Exactly. Exactly. Um, man, I had a question for you now it's I'm spacing on it. Um, I'll ask this question first. How can people connect with you and support you? 
So there's lots of different ways. Um, social media, it's at Dave Schmidow and all the things. If you can figure out how to spell Schmidow, you'll find me. <laughs> um, so it's at Dave, S-C-H-M-I-T-T-O-U. So you can find me there on Twitter and on Instagram, um, LinkedIn, all, all the places. Um, you can shoot me an email. Dave at teachbetter.com is a great email that you can use. And I'll even give you my phone number. Feel free to text or call anytime. Lord knows about a million people already have it. And I have no idea how, who half the people are there texting me. So feel free to <laughs> reach out. You can join the club. 734-377-3457. Uh, text me. Just tell me who you are when you're texting though. So I know who I'm responding to. Um, and let's continue to connect. That's awesome. Uh, all right. I'll go ahead and ask this uh, final question. So Say there's an, you will love this question. I'm super excited for your response. No pressure. I'm nervous now, man. (laughs) Yeah, no, I'm putting the pressure on you. So say there's a complete revision of schools across the world. Uh And we decide to build a brand new education system from scratch. Mm -hmm. Um, And they only select a handful of educators across the world to interview, to help Mm -hmm. redesign the school system. And they select you, Dave Schmidow. The only stipulation is that they limit you to three statements um, to sort of provide them with this feedback for this new school system. So what would the three statements be that you would tell them when they're trying to redesign this new school system? So just for clarity, I'm already hired, right? Oh yeah. Okay. So I'm hired. So whatever I say is not going to cost me the job. It's just consulting fees. You're good. You have no (laughs) tie to it. You're set. Okay. And so I'm giving them three grounding statements to frame around this brand new school. Yep. Okay. So a statement is not necessarily a sentence. It can run on with lots of commas and so on and so forth. So <laughs> Absolutely. I, guess, I guess the first one uh, would be only measure what matters. Um, and that's kind of a loaded one because they're first going to have to articulate what truly matters to them. But only measure what matters. Um, I would say second, hire for heart, not competence. Um, when I would hire people, I asked two questions, only two questions during interviews. And the first one was, who are you? What makes you tick? And the second one was at the end of the day, how do you know if it's been a good day or bad day? That's all I cared about. I wanted to know what they measured, what they valued and um, where where they went with it. Um, And the third one would be, um, we're not perfect yet. So recognize that although this is a brand new school that we're creating to change the way it's all been done, we're going to walk in and say, this is the answer. It's still not the answer, it's an answer. And we need to be willing to evolve and change and grow just like we would be expecting everybody else to. So Gosh, so powerful. I need like a Dave Schmidt hype up talk every <laughs> Sunday uh, before Let's the do it, man. starts. Uh, the, I just need that in my life. That's awesome. Uh, Dave Schmidt, thank you so much for the time. This has been so much fun to connect and, and to learn from you. So thank you. It's been a blast, man. Thank you for listening to the Ed Essentials podcast. Original music by Patrick Cunningham. Links to connect with us are in the show notes. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast. And remember, always bring your best, and we'll see you next time on the Ed Essentials Podcast.